in the time that it took for us to greet each other, over 100 babies in the world were killed through abortion. In the time that it takes me to say the words planned parenthood, two babies were killed from abortion. About 1,500 babies are killed every day in the United States and over 53,000 in the world. If all the babies that were killed by abortion since 1980 were still alive today, the oldest would be around 33 years old and the world's population would be over 8 billion. Our culture is becoming less and less Christian. So what do we do? Our society is crumbling. What do we do? What can we do? If the foundations are destroyed, what will the righteous do? That last question comes from Psalm number 11. Would you turn there in your Bibles? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Are our hands tied? Are we left to do nothing? Because our foundation is crumbling. The, the, the statistics about abortion is just one example of the way in which we see our foundation crumbling. We could talk about education. We could talk about the, the, um, the post-Christian culture that we live in. The fact that over 50% of the people in our country don't go to church at all, don't read their Bibles. Okay, Our, our, our culture is becoming more and more spiritually, biblically illiterate. And so when we talk to people, it makes it difficult for us to talk to them about the things of God because a lot of times they don't know the things that were assumed maybe 40, 50 years ago. And so if we look at that decline over the last, say, 40 years, then what do we do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Let's read this chapter, this psalm, I should say, Psalm number 11. And David gives us, through the Holy Spirit, or I should say, the Holy Spirit gives us, through David, our response to that question, what we can do when, the, when our society is crumbling. Psalm number 11. This is the Word of God. And the Lord, I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold... His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. 
fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold His face. The righteous have a responsibility amid a crumbling society to put their confident trust in God. That's what David does here. This psalm is attributed to him. You see that in the superscription underneath Psalm number 11. And he is apparently under attack by some wicked men, and so he has some advisors come to him. We'll talk about that here in just a second. And they're going to encourage him to flee. They're trying to take advantage of David and get David to give up. This psalm can be called a trust psalm. So far we've looked at four different types of psalms. The first was a wisdom psalm, psalm number one. Then we looked at a kingship or a covenant psalm where we see the psalmist give praise to the God of the covenant, of the Davidic covenant, Psalm 2. Then in chapters or Psalms number 3 through 7, we looked at lament psalms where it goes from sorrow to trust. And then in Psalm number 8, we saw uh, the type of psalm called a praise psalm where the psalmist is just overwhelmed with love for God and spills out in praise. And that's what David does in Psalm number 8. Here we see a fifth type of psalm that we ought to recognize when we come upon it, and it is called a trust psalm. This is, uh, these categories, by the way, are just um, developed by scholars over the ages, and I, I found this categorizing of the Psalms to be helpful so that when we go through them and read them on our own, we recognize where they start and where they're going. So a lament psalm starts with sorrow and goes to trust. Here in Psalm 11, we still have trouble, right? Verses uh, 2 through 3, we have some trouble that's going on, but there's no sorrow really. The psalmist begins in verse 1 with trust. So this is what we should see in and trust that he, from beginning to end, trusts that God is in control, that God's going to take care of his circumstances. And he focuses on that security and trust that comes from God, that God produces. Notice verse 1, how it just comes out right there in the first line. In the Lord, David says, I take refuge. This verbal phrase, taking refuge, is a present perfect in the Hebrew language, and it has the idea of continuing to take refuge. It's an ongoing thing. I continue to take refuge in You, O God. Not that I took refuge in You or I'm taking refuge in You one time here, but that I'm continuing to do that. And why does the psalmist need to take refuge in God? Well, verses, uh, the second part of verse 1 through verse 3 show us that there is a threat from the enemies, isn't there? There's a threat from the enemies. Now, before we look at these verses, what we need to understand is how long does this speech go? Notice in verse 1, the second line, how can you say to my soul, and then notice the quotation marks that begin the speech. Right? So someone is saying to David, flee as a bird to your mountain, and he goes on, and if you have a New American Standard or a New International Version or English Standard Version, 
then your quotation marks are going to go all the way till the end of what? Which verse? Verse 3. Okay? So we need to, we need to see that, that the translators of our Bible okay, understand in the Hebrew language there is no punctuation. There's no punctuation. So any punctuation that you have in your Bibles is, is an interpretation by the translators. They just put it in there for us to help, help us to understand uh, where it ought to be. And I think our translators did a good job of doing that. Here's the other option. I don't know of any translation that stops it at the end of two, but there are scholars who believe that this, this conversation with David stops at the end of two so that David's response is in verse three. Okay, so the, the person who's talking to David says, flee to the mountain and so on. Look at these enemies. They got their bows ready to, to fire and so on or their arrows ready to fire, then verse 3 would be David's response. If the foundations of our society are destroyed, what can we, the righteous, do? And that might be a legitimate response by David, but I think um, that, that our translators got, a good, uh, got it right when they took it all the way till the end. That is, that these people who are talking to David, they want David to flee. Get out while there's danger. Because if the foundations of our society are destroyed, what can we do? What can we as the righteous do? What can you do, David? If you're so righteous, what can you do? So there's the length of the speech. Second, we need to see the identity of the speaker. Who is talking here to David? David is responding to someone who's talking to him. Look what he says. How can you say to my soul, how can you say to my soul? So there are really two options of people who are talking to him. Either his enemies are talking to him, flee as the bird to your mountain, or it could be his friends or advisors, right? I think it's actually the second one there, his friends and advisors, because look at verse 2. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. If the wicked were talking, they wouldn't talk about themselves as the wicked, would they? If anything, they would say, we bend the bow at you. We're, we've made ready the arrow. No. See, this is talk, talked about as, as if this is a close group of advisors to David. And David is uh, on the throne at this time at Jerusalem. And his advisors are telling him, it's time to go. And David's thought is this. Look at the last part of verse 1 again. How can you say this? How can you say this to my soul? Flee to the mountains. I like the way Alan Ross interprets David's sentiment here in verse 1. You're telling me to take refuge in the mountains, but how could you possibly tell me to take refuge in something other than God? See, David is not speaking to his enemies here. He's speaking to his friends. David wouldn't be so surprised at their lack of faith. So instead, I think David's responding to his friends and advisors. He's saying, how can you possibly tell me to, to flee, to take refuge in something else other than God? Notice the content of their speech to him. Okay, And I'm telling you, it goes. I, I'm suggesting to you that it goes from the end of verse 1 through verse 3. First, they tell him to flee. Apparently, 
We're going to find out in verse 2 that there's some trouble going on. That these enemies are closing in on David. And so, for them, the only sensible thing to do is to seek a place of refuge outside of Jerusalem. And David looks at it this way. There are only two options for me. Either I take refuge in the mountains where there's places to hide. It makes it more difficult for enemies to come in and find me. I can find a cave or something. Or, that's the one option, go to the mountains, take refuge there, or take refuge in the Lord. Those seem to be very clear to David. Now, why would, they, why would he be forced? Why would the people who are in charge of Israel be forced to go to the mountains? Well, verse 2 tells us, For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. The land of Israel is not ruled by the law of God, apparently. It's now being ruled by violence, isn't it? Violence has taken over. So this is not a a secret attack, even though it says uh, that it's happening uh, at night. They make ready the bow upon the string to shoot in darkness. It's, It's in darkness. It doesn't mean that that this is a secret attack. The reason we know it's not a secret attack is because David's advisors know about it. And so David knows about it. And because of this, friends suggest to him, David, there's nothing left for you to do. Look at verse 3. This is their suggestion to him in the form of a question. David, if the foundations are destroyed, what can you the righteous one do? What can we, the righteous ones, do? See, and the society is crumbling, David. The enemies are seeking to destroy the foundation. The word for foundation there in verse 3, the word for foundations, is a word, a Hebrew word, it comes from a Hebrew word that's used in Isaiah 19.10. And there it's talking about the foundations of Egypt and it's called the pillars of Egypt. The pillars of the Egyptian society is the idea. So here the foundations are referring to the pillars of the current rule of government. The enemies are seeking to cut out the pillars of the the very society that was set up by God. This was called a theocracy. Do you remember the the theocracy that God put in place from the time of of Moses on, that God would have His appointed ruler. And they didn't want God's appointed ruler. We saw this in Psalm number 2. Right? The nations rage against God's leader. They don't want God's leader. They are enraged at who God has put in place. And so they are defiant against Him. We will not accept your rule as king. We will not accept you as God's man. We will not accept God's appointment of you. No, we will rule ourselves. So the friends of David see this and say, if these enemies can operate through their violence, they can accomplish what they want through 
their violence, we have anarchy on our hands. And so what can we do? If our society, if our societal structure, if our theocratic rule that God has put in place has been broken down, if the, if the knees have been chopped out from under them, then there's nothing that we can do, David. So flee as a bird to the mountains. This is David's friends, his advisors. We have nothing left that we can do. There's nowhere left to turn. Why stay around and be destroyed? Why stay around and be a part of their spoils or be a part of, of, of their victory? But remember where David's confidence is? It's not a choice. For me to flee the mountain, I don't even think about that. Why? Because look at verse 1 again. In the Lord I take refuge. David, why can you have such, such confidence in God? Why are you not fleeing to the mountains? Why can you stand up in the midst of a society that's crumbling all around you, David? Because I'm taking my refuge in God. I'm, my refuge is not in the society. The society can crumble all it wants. My God won't crumble. He is still on the throne. And that's what He says in verses 4-7. through seven. My confidence is in God. And my God weighs the actions of the righteous and the wicked. So, we could look at verses 4-7 through seven as answer to the question, why should the righteous take refuge in God? Okay, David said in verse 1, I take refuge in God. I'm not fleeing to the mountains. And so we could ask him, David, why? Why do you take refuge in God? And I, w- I would suggest to you that he offers three reasons why we can take refuge in God. Number one, when the foundations crumble, God is still on the throne. Verse 4, when the foundations crumble, God is still on the throne. Follow along in verse 4 again as I read. This is David's response. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. When the foundation is crumbling, our temptation is to repair it ourselves or to flee. I'm out of here. I I can't see this foundation come to a complete pile of rubble, so I'm gone. And the reason we do this is we, we, because we think God has either lost control or He doesn't care. But David here reminds himself and us that God is still on the throne. God is still on the throne. Turn to Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2. Second to last book in your Old Testament. If the foundations of a crumbling society are destroyed, what do the righteous do? What can the righteous do? Number one, we remember that God is still on the throne. Is He? Is God still on the throne? Is that just for David? 
that God is still on the throne. This is a similar thing that comes up here in Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk is frustrated that God's not responding to evil. So in chapter 1, he pleads with God to act. God, look at all this evil that's going around in Judah. Aren't you going to do anything? And God responds by telling Habakkuk, Habakkuk, I know what's going on. I know the evil and I hate evil. And I'm going to judge this evil. And here's how I'm going to do it, Habakkuk. I'm going to raise up the wicked Babylonians to judge Israel. And so Habakkuk responds at the end of chapter 1 and says, wait a second, that's not the action I was looking for. Yeah, we want to see you punish evil, but not through people who are more evil than us. Why don't you pick out the righteous people in our land and punish the evil in our land that way? Not from people more wicked than us. And look at verse 4, because God shows Habakkuk that you know, we can't fully understand God's ways in judging nations, so we leave that to God. Look at verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but, and here's a... a section of Scripture, a phrase that is repeated several times in Scripture, including in the New Testament. The righteous or the righteous one will live by his faith. Habakkuk, don't question me. I am God. I know how to judge nations. I know much more about the evil. I'm much more concerned about the evil than you are. You don't even know the half of it. Okay, so don't judge me. You need to put your faith in me. Trust that I know what I'm doing. That I am on the throne. And here's where we put that faith. Look at verse 18. In here, verses 6 through 8, 6 through 20, there's several illustrations that are used to help Habakkuk see his need to put his trust in God. Verse 18. What profit is the idol when its marker has carved it, or an image, a teacher of falsehood, for its its maker, excuse me, maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake! To a mute stone, arise! And that is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath at all inside it. But listen to this, Habakkuk. Listen to this, Ambassador Baptist. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. What do we do when the foundation crumbles? What do we do when the foundation of our society is getting cut out at the knees? Number one, we remember that God is still on the throne. God is on the throne. The righteous one lives by faith. Oh, it may look like injustice is winning. It may look like Satan has the upper hand on God. It may look like God is indisposed in some way or He has His hands tied behind His back. It may look like God is unconcerned about what is right and just. 
But that's where our faith comes in. We have to recognize that God is still on the throne. Turn back to Psalm number 11. What does it mean that God is on His throne? Because when we think about God and His throne, it sounds like God is far away and uninterested. He's like the God of the deists who think that He kind of put the world in motion. Yeah, He created it, but then He just kind of set it out there like we would do to a top that we spun. And we just set it out there and we leave it go and let it happen. That's not our God. Okay? We, we think of God on the throne, that He is high and lifted up. He is far away and uninterested. He's kind of just let things go and, you know, hopefully they turn out okay. But just because God is high and lifted up, and He is, Psalm number 8, How majestic is Your name, O Lord, in all the earth. He is high and lifted up. But that does not mean that He is hands off and uninterested. Remember what the next part of Psalm number 8 said, verse 4, What is man that you are mindful of him, that you would take thought of him? You know, we think of God with creating the whole things and, and putting them together and holding it together with His little fingers like the first few verses of Psalm number 8 say. And so we think maybe God's kind of uninterested. It's too small of a concern for Him that our society is crumbling or whatever. But even though God is high and mighty, He is also personal. And so one extreme is that you know God is far removed from His people, but the other extreme is that you know He's so close that He's paying attention to the trees and He's forgotten about the forest. So he's, he's so interested in our little lives that He's forgotten about all the bigger problems that are going on in the world. Neither of those are the truth. Neither of those are accurate description of how God is toward us. Instead, God is both high and lifted up. He is mighty. He is strong. And He is near. At the same time, He has a, a handle on everything he has everything in proper balance. He knows what's going on in our society. And so when we are afraid, when we feel like we are the last man standing, when we feel like we may be neglected by God, we need to remind ourselves that God is in His holy temple. And he is on His throne that He controls it all. In other words, when the foundation that we've set our feet in, this society, when that foundation is crumbling, we feel like everything is sinking. We need to fix our eyes on the foundation that doesn't crumble. We need to fix our eyes what is unshakable, and that is the throne of God. It doesn't move. It doesn't crumble. See, God is not only transcendent, but He is also imminent. Notice the second part of verse 4. We saw He's in His holy temple. And then it says, His eyes behold. And then His eyelids test the sons of men. Have you ever thought about God having eyelids? Okay, we understand God is spirit, so this is just what's called an anthropomorphism. It's just a way for us to understand Him in human terms. 
Even though he doesn't technically have eyes, he technically doesn't have ears, he's spirit. But it's as if he has eyelids and he's squinting just to give proper focus to the sons of men, to us, to our needs, to our concerns. He knows what's going on. His eyes behold. God's knowledge of all things is is all-encompassing. That means He knows always what is going on with every person, with every wicked person, even when we're not aware of it. You know, wicked people often think that God will not notice what they do. For the wicked, the thought that God knows about them is actually fearful. For us, when we think God knows me, that's actually a great thought, right? Psalm 8.4. But for the wicked, the fact that God knows me, that's a fearful thing. And so they, that's why you have all these, what I would call, practical atheists. There are no real atheists. People who say they don't believe in a God. They do that because they don't want to think about God knowing them and their wickedness and the judgment that comes upon them. But for us, when we hear that God's eyes behold what's going on in our society, and our lives, when we hear that God's eyelids are focused in, they're squinting to the point that they focus, that is a sign of blessing for us. And we know that God doesn't look upon us because of something inherent in us, right? But rather, something inherent in Christ. And we know that God looks at us because of Christ, because of our connection with Christ. He hears our prayers. He cares about our crumbling society. Just because God is high and exalted doesn't mean that He's not near. doesn't mean that He's far away, removed, unconcerned. And the foundations of our society crumble. What can the righteous do? Number one, remember that God is still on His throne. Number two, Remember that God deals righteously, verses 5 and 6. When the foundations crumble, remember that God deals righteously. This is what Habakkuk needed to see. He didn't think God was being righteous in this case. How could you take a wicked nation and judge us, a less wicked nation? So we need to remember that God is a God who deals righteously. Verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. Here we see God's righteous dealing and how He treats the righteous and the wicked. Notice verse 5, He tests the righteous. That is, He knows what's going on and is able to adequately treat them. He treats them according to their righteousness. But you know, He also tests the wicked. He knows what's going on with them and He will judge them. Our problem, Habakkuk's problem, is that we think that God ought to judge them now. God ought to judge them on our terms. You know, if, if the foundations of our society are crumbling and we can point to specific people who are causing it to crumble, then God, get up off your throne and judge them now. That's what we want to see. And what we need to remember is that, yes, God is on His throne, and secondly, that He deals righteously. And He does it in His timing. 
Don't you understand that God hates their sin? He doesn't turn a blind eye to it as if, well, there's one little area or pocket of hatred toward me and I don't really know how or want to deal with that right now. That's not our God. Look at verse 5 again. Look at the second line. And the one who loves violence, okay, we could just take that whole phrase and say, and the wicked, his soul hates. Again, God doesn't just hate the sin. He hates the sinner. Psalm 5, verse 5. Psalm 11, verse 5. Both of those tell us the same thing. God hates the sinner. We can't disconnect ourselves from our sin. Okay, as When we are wicked, God hated us. And the idea that God hates us is not a good thing. We, we recognize that. It actually has to do with His choice of us. Remember in Malachi 1, verses 2 and 3, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. There, it's talking about God in relationship to His choosing. Jacob have I chosen, we could say, and Esau have I not chosen. And so in that sense, I'm not going to treat Esau as a chosen one. I'm not going to give him the blessing that a chosen one would receive. The same thing is true here. In the sense that God hates them, that these wicked people He has not chosen and they will not receive His favor. Instead, He tests their deeds and He will judge them. This judgment is coming here in verse 6. Upon the wicked He will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. Oh, believer, recognize tonight that God hates wickedness and that He will judge wickedness in His timing. It may not be soon enough for us, but that's where our faith comes in. We need to trust that God knows what's best. God knows when to judge whoever needs to be judged. And what He's telling us here is that this fire and brimstone is likely future. It could be some sort of physical and earthly destruction that's coming upon them like Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19. But more likely, it is that you know, as the foundations being destroyed, David and David's advisors recognize that God will bring fire and brimstone on those people. Oh, they may live a financially prosperous life. They may get all of their accolades in their life and die, maybe even a happy death. But when it comes time for judgment, it will be fire and brimstone. That will be the portion of their cup. And so trust God's timing. God knows how to deal with the righteous. God knows how to deal with the wicked. Because God is righteous. It may seem unjust now how God is dealing, or we could say not dealing, with the injustice that we see all around us. It may seem unjust. But believer, you need to know that God is just. And one day, He will be seen by all to be just. And that time will be the clearest time, I think, in history at the judgment. When God judges those who are opposed to Him. And He is a refuge for those who have called on His Son. 
when the foundation of our society is destroyed or when it's being destroyed, when it's crumbling. We need to remember that God is on His throne. Secondly, we need to remember that God is a righteous God. He deals righteously. And then thirdly, verse 7, that God is faithful to the righteous. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold His face. God will deal with the wicked maybe in this lifetime, but certainly in the next. At the time of judgment. Because He's a righteous God. But God will also be faithful to the righteous because He's a righteous God. God will be faithful to us. Now, this last line is a little bit unclear as to what David means. The upright will behold his face. Obviously, we understand he's talking about righteous, but is he talking about in this lifetime? We will behold his face in this lifetime. And if that is the case, it very well could be. That means that there's going to be deliverance for David and his advisors. There's going to be some sort of physical deliverance in David's lifetime. And for us, that would be the same. But I would actually suggest to you that it's probably not referring to that, but rather the next lifetime. And that's because we know of, if you go through Hebrews 11, you see all sorts of people who died not having received the promise. They received it in the next life. The hope of believers of all ages is that someday we will see God. And this is our great victory. This is in contrast to the cup of judgment that's ready to be poured out on the wicked. The cup of judgment that's overflowing and ready to be poured out on them. We will see God deliver. We will see God's face. But I think David's talking about in the next lifetime. I just want to uh, just make two points of application in closing. First, when is it right for flight and when is it right to fight? Okay, so we could ask it this way, fight or flight. When is it right to stand up and fight and when is it right to cut bait and leave, flee, go to the mountains? Because here David thought that it was best to stand up and fight take his refuge in God and to flee to the mountain would actually be defiance against God or at least lack of faith in God. But if you think about David's life, there were other times when he did flee, right? Like with Absalom, when he drove him from his kingdom. At that point, David saw fit to flee. Jesus stood up to mocking and persecution throughout much of his life. But there were also times where he fled from the crowd, right? Where the crowd was either trying to prematurely make him king or to kill him prematurely. In both of those instances, he fled. He left from the crowd. Paul stood up for his faith and in many cases was imprisoned as a result. But in other cases... 
Paul fled like when he was let down by ropes in a basket there in Damascus or on the way to Damascus. So how do we know when it's time for fight or when it's time for flight? And the answer is very simply faith. That is, when the option is to trust in God as opposed to fighting, then we take the option to trust in God. When the option is to trust in God as opposed to fleeing, then we take the option to trust in God. And so this means that when we have this choice, when the decision has to be made between fight or flight, we need to use discernment to determine whether we ought to stand up and show faith or wisely just leave. In every case, we're going to have to look to God for confidence. You see, the real test is not the geographical location of where we are during a given tribulation, but it is who is the object of our faith. Are we finding our refuge in something other than the holy God who's on the throne? who deals righteously and treats the righteous with justice. So the choice comes down to faith. And faith requires discernment, doesn't it? In those cases, we could look at you know, Paul for an example. We could say, Paul, you know, maybe in that case it would have been more wise to, to flee or it's more wise to stay and fight. Why didn't you do that? Okay, but, but I think that's because Paul understood his time better. He understood his situation and that his flesh would actually be lacking faith or showing a lack of faith in doing one of the other things. And so in those cases, we need to turn to God in times of refuge. If the foundations of our society are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Friends, the signs of a crumbling society are all around us. And sadly, many of the signs hardly even alarm us anymore. We see a murder in Detroit on the news. We hardly react because, hey, we see it every night. We've almost become inoculated to the abundance of evil. Where do we turn when our society crumbles, when things get worse and worse, when things get bleaker and bleaker? Do we turn to the world for answers? Do we turn to our own wisdom, try to solve the problems ourselves, cut down on all these things that are making the, the, the society crumble? Do we take refuge in a home security system? Do we take refuge in the protection that we can receive from the money that we have? Do we seek refuge in trying to solve all the world's problems? Do we seek refuge in abandoning our society? Maybe we need to go to a different country. Do we seek refuge by complaining about our society? Maybe commiserating with other people who are equally frustrated with it. Christians, God is in His holy temple. God is righteous. He watches over the affairs of the righteous. He knows what is going on. And our refuge doesn't come from anything 
that this world has to offer. Our refuge doesn't come from anything this world has to offer. Our refuge is in God. No matter how grim our country or our world looks politically or economically or morally, the sky has not fallen because God holds it up. God is still on the throne when the moral foundations of our society are shaken. We turn our attention to the throne of God which is unshakable. This is my Father's world. Let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is our Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died will be satisfied and earth and heaven will be one. What do we do when the foundations of our society crumble? Our refuge is found in God. Let's pray. God, our Father, You are the transcendent God. You are far and above us, high and lifted up, mighty, strong. And yet You are near us as well. And we see that in no clearer way than in the person of Jesus the Christ, Your Son. Because we call Him the King of Kings. And that way we think He is high and lifted up. But we also call Him Emmanuel, God with us. Thank You, Father, for being the mighty God and the personal God that You are to us. And even though the foundations of our society are crumbling beyond our control, Your foundation will never crumble. Your throne will never be destroyed. You are our refuge and strength. A very present help in, in trouble. Therefore, we won't fear even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be cast into the sea. Though the waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling, there is a river, the streams whereof make glad the city of God holy place, the tabernacle, the Most High. Your throne is unshakable. And we trust that we will see Your face. We will see Your judgment. And at that time, while it's not clear what You are doing, why You are allowing evil to continue, why You're not judging it now, we know that it's a judgment and we trust because we live by faith. We trust that at that time it will be clear that You are just and all people will see You to be just. Lord, You watch over us day and night. Forgive us for attributing evil to You or attributing apathy to You. That You either are not a good God and that's why the evil abounds or that You don't care. We know from Your Word that neither of those are true. And so we 
bow before You with contrition, ask You to forgive us and to help us to fix our firm hope, our firm confidence in You and on Your throne which lasts forever. The thrones of the kings of this world, they come and go. They are overpowered by nations. They crumble right out from underneath the rulers. But that's not Your throne. Your throne lasts forever. You, God, are good and righteous in all You do, both now and forevermore. We pray these things and thank You for Your grace in the name of Jesus our Savior.